Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's Supply Chain Now live stream. Kelly Barner and Greg White here with you. How are you doing today, Greg? I'm doing great. It's great to be back together with you again, Kelly. I know, and we're actually bringing in Mike Griswold in a few minutes for his monthly return, which will be a fun conversation. Um, just to sort of tease the theme behind today's discussion, we're going to be talking a little bit of March Madness bracket breakers it's one of those few things you don't actually have to know anything about sports to play, right? You can do it based on what's your favorite city, which one is the most fun to pronounce. We had a lot of fun with Gonzaga back right. when we were in the in the green room. Um, so favorite we're gonna, colors, right? Yeah, favorite team colors. Exactly. Do you know somebody that went to any of the schools? Uh, because everybody's brackets seem to break right off the right off the bat. Are you a big bracket play guy, Greg? I, you know, I should be. I. I love the game, but uh, no, I'm, you know, I hate to lose. So I, <laughs> so and, why play? Right. Kind of that, <laughs> kind of that, uh, you know, when somebody's offering you a billion dollars or whatever it is for a perfect bracket, how unbelievably difficult it is, right? Yes, absolutely. So we're going to talk through some of that, although more on the supply chain side than the basketball side. So don't want to get anybody too excited. Well, with Mike here, we will definitely get some basketballs talk in. We will. We're going we to lace to that in a little bit. Chain. Yeah, exactly. Now, before we bring Mike in, a couple of quick programming notes. For anybody that has not yet checked out the nomination opportunities around the Supply Chain and Procurement Awards, April 1st is our deadline. So we've got everything from technology trailblazers to unsung heroes. It's actually going to be a fantastic opportunity to celebrate the best that supply chain and procurement have brought out. And We've heard an awful lot of great success stories over the last couple of years. So yeah. let's take some time to celebrate those. Get your nominations in. And slightly shorter term, next week over at Art of Procurement, my other hat that I wear, we're running digital outcomes Tuesday through Thursday, a couple of hours each day. It's live. It's virtual. It's completely free. So you have no excuses. There won't be brackets or a billion dollars, but Great speakers, great focus on digital outcomes. So I hope to see everybody there. Maybe a billion dollar outcome from it. You never maybe know. Maybe a billion dollar outcome. Exactly. And maybe you don't get to keep it, but maybe it's good for your career to deliver <laughs> right. a billion dollar outcome, right? That's right. Chalk, right. That, chalk one up for you. That's right. Exactly. So adding that to the list of things to do today, deliver a billion dollar outcome. Just putting that on right. the list somewhere after lunch, mid-afternoon, during quiet time. <laughs> Billion dollars. <laughs> but before we bring Mike in, let's say hello to a few folks. Somebody we're missing today. Oh, Scott had better luck on the roulette table than he did with his brackets. Wow. Well, that tells you a lot. Having that does luck on tell the roulette you a lot. Table, it's tough. That absolutely does. So sorry you're not here on screen, Scott, but we'll we'll try to do you justice. And we also have Josh here with us. Hello, Josh. Now, as everybody says hello from all over the world, including Pakistan, which is very cool, don't hesitate to share any little tips or how you make decisions if you do brackets, either with family or in the office. 
We're going to be pulling up some of those. And we have got Jean from France. We have people from all over the place with us here today. So Josh, it seems like every time Josh reaches out to us, Kelly, it's raining. So when he says slightly less rainy, I think that might be a good thing because he was in a deluge, if I recall, the last time we, we heard from him. So That tells you everything you need to know about somebody's weather, slightly less rainy. <laughs> it's right? true. You know, somebody asked me how the weather here in Boston was today, and I said, we have some good melting. Good <laughs> I don't say like sunny in the lower 40s because that sounds depressing right. to people who live in Florida. Who say, oh, we got some good melting going on outside the window. <laughs> it's tough this time of year because, you know, when you're farther in the southern part of the U.S., uh, like today, it's going to be 75 or something like that in Atlanta. And yes. uh, you really forget, I mean, until you watch the Weather Channel or something, you really forget what the weather is like up north and how significantly different it can be when you used to drive everywhere. That's you know, right. You got the point now that you can fly two hours from Atlanta to Boston. I, I had, have to confess many years ago, I got in a bit of a hurry and I forgot to take an overcoat. Oh uh, yeah. That is a classic mistake. In Coming a into Logan. Yep. Yeah. But see, this is where I think we need to add more to these conversations around weather. We need to be sort of like, what's your pest forecast? Because anybody that's ever talked to me about the weather knows that my way I process all that is to say, yeah, but we don't have tarantulas or alligators. <laughs> I would rather have a snowstorm with a nice day of melting than have tarantulas and alligators all day. And I just, I assume, I don't care if you're in Austin, Texas, or Tallahassee, Florida, or Atlanta, Georgia. I just assume your backyards are all full of tarantulas and alligators. <laughs> that, that goes a long way towards feeling better about dealing with snowstorms in the winter. Let's, we're going to let you have it so that you don't feel so bad about the warm weather down here. There you go. Well, before we lose anybody who yeah. has arachnophobia, let's go ahead and swish in Mike Griswold from Gartner. Hey, Mike. How are you? Hey, Mike. Hey, everybody. How's the weather where you are? Yeah, exactly. And what bugs are in your backyard? So we, Idaho doesn't have, we have snakes, we have rattlesnakes, but for the most part, those are not where, where the people are. Weather here is nice, Greg. W wife and I went out and golfed yesterday. Going to be ah. 60 today. Um, so yeah, we are starting to, uh, to start to turn the corner. Uh, every year I have to mow my lawn before my birthday, which is at the end of March. And I'm on schedule for that uh, as well. Too, really? So yes. Yeah, I, my, my lawn mowing season is uh, end of March through probably Halloween. Wow. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's a, not too far off from Boston. Yeah. <laughs> you get a little bit of a break. <laughs> a little bit. Boise is a, is a bit of a unique uh, climate, isn't it? It I is. Mean, you, don't, you don't get the heavy snows and whatnot. No, that you expect. I'm not a skier, so Boise itself... Uh, which sits in, the, in a, the base of a mountain range. Boise itself, we might get 20 inches a year. We have a, a climate very similar to Phoenix. You know, we'll have 12, 13 days over 100, but that's like 105. It's not like 100 and, you know, 160,000 degrees that they get in Phoenix. So it's, right. uh, it's manageable, low humidity, So which is bad for me because I grew up in western New York and now – when it gets above 20%, I start to whine. So I've, <laughs> yeah, I've, I was spoiled. I'm spoiled here now. I mean, I grew up, I mean, similar to your well, weather, Kelly, you know, 85 degrees and 90% humidity was our summers. Yes. So, 
Exactly. I've gotten soft when it comes to humidity, I'm afraid. (laughs) But not soft, hopefully, when it comes to basketball. Um, And so we're going to do some some bracket breaking today. Um, Before we get into the actual supply chain talk, any tips? You know, we were asking before you joined us on screen if people have fun ways that they decide who's going to win because we know it has nothing to do with normal season results or basketball skills or money that the school has or likelihood of winning any unique approach that you have to filling out your bracket. So like, like Greg, I'm a fairly serious bracket filler outer. uh, And I'm also of the belief that you get to submit one bracket, you know, these Mm. people that submit like six, it's like, it's still hard, but there's a lot of different bases you can cover with more than one bracket. My favorite picking technique, though, was what mascot could beat what other mascot. So if you were like the, I think it's the UC Davis Sea Slugs, you had no chance, right? <laughs> Everyone right. was going to beat you. But if you were like, you know, a lion or a bear or the you know, LSU Tigers, right? You know, right. you do pretty well until you got into people that had firearms like UMass Musketeers. You know, right. the savior musketeers, yeah, people with firearms, yeah. cowboys. So yeah. it really just depends on on how literally do you want to take the mascots. Yeah. No, that's true. Well, I married into the Penn State cult. Ah. Call it a oh, cult. boy. Um, and so, exactly. Yeah. So, but my children were all trained when they heard, right, Buckeye. Uh, oh, it's yeah. It's just a nut that falls from a tree, yes. right? So maybe yes. could could a Buckeye like roll onto a sea slug? That would be a really that, tough one. That would one be a tough if, one. If you had to use that in your bracket. Yes. Yes. Well, then you got yeah. the ones that are really hard to predict, like a billiken. <laughs> right? Yes. Which, what is that? It's a bird. It's a goat. Oh, it's a goat. Is oh, it like is a pelican? I, I thought it was a Wait bird. a minute. Maybe we have a conflict here. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's yeah. different. You don't hear it a whole lot. I'm gonna have to look it up look now. It up. I thought it was a like a um, mountain goat kind of thing. Okay, <laughs> I'm sure somebody is gonna have someone will know the answer to that. Yeah, exactly. Somebody that went to whatever school either has something that looks like a pelican or something that it's is St. Louis, like a right? Goat. Right? St. Louis Billigans. Billigans. Yeah. All right. Yeah. The All Billigan right, Greg, well... is a charm doll. <laughs> so, All right. Well, I think we're it's looking so. So you can't, so that one doesn't win. <laughs> no. That's like if you were the so-and-so state fuzzy babies or yeah. something like yeah. that, right? You might get yeah, some no. sentimental votes, but yeah, other than that, yeah. No. All right. Wow. Well, interesting. Yeah. The goal, right, of brackets, and, you know, we were talking about potentially being able to win a, a million dollars, but if you can get to the final four and still have your bracket intact, that is a yes. pretty huge deal, almost as big a deal as being in the final four. So let's kind of flip this over to supply chain, Mike, as we look back at all the disruption and unpredictability we've had over the last couple of years. When we think about some final four strategies or predictions for final four, what were those things that should have worked, should have made it to the final four, but actually crapped out in the first round? Yeah, there, there's one, as I was mm. thinking about about that question, there's one that, that we've talked a lot about. Now, you, you could potentially put an asterisk next to this one because of the pandemic. But I also think people were thinking about this before the pandemic. And that's this idea of just in time. I think what we found during the pandemic was just in time got kicked out in the first round. Up until the pandemic, just in time, you know, what what was kind of the way people were thinking about how they wanted to manage inventory. 
primarily because they had a much more predictable demand signal. The pandemic comes, the demand signal is all over the place, if it, or even non-existent, right? Depending on what you were selling and what channel you had. And, and people found that just in time now meant basically no stuff. So and it, it'll be interesting to see as we come out of the pandemic, the, where, where we're headed now, will we revert to <clears throat> something that looks like just in time? Or have people evolved their thinking to say, you know what, we need inventory to, to, to be more responsive, to be more agile, to be more resilient, and we just have to carry some more stuff. Now, maybe we don't need to carry it at the levels we carried it pre-pandemic, right? You know, I, I never met a retailer who wasn't over-assorted or had way too much inventory, right? In fact, as we were coming into the pandemic, we had a lot of our retailer and consumer products companies talking to us about SKU rationalization, right? If you recall, very early in the pandemic, you know, we we saw dramatic changes in choice, right? You may have been Mm -hmm. had four choices of ketchup. Now you had two. And, you know, I, I think there was a hope from us in the analyst community that that we would use this as an opportunity to kind of right-size our portfolios. I think, unfortunately, what's happened is we've started to see and hear some of that skew proliferation start to come back. So to me, it's it's that just-in-time concept is the one that I think pre-pandemic everyone saw is a slam dunk, if I use a basketball metaphor. And I think- Oh, I think, that was pretty good. Yeah. I, I stayed up all night thinking of that one, but <laughs> but now I, I think people are asking themselves the question: mm-hmm. What is the right inventory strategy, and and how mm-hmm. do we how do we ad- adopt that moving forward? Yeah, well, and Greg, you actually had a, a story in your your curation of stories this morning, specifically around retail and the debt right, that companies are going to be willing to carry. And that a little bit goes along with that just in time, because if you, it completely changed your strategy on how much debt you're willing to carry. Yeah. Um, if you've got to hold more inventory, any additional thoughts there either, or if you want to give a different strategy that should have made it to the final form and got dropped off along the way, or, or thoughts based on Mike's well, suggestion. Mike alluded to it. I mean, in, in talking about, you know, in talking about just in time and it's demand forecasting. Demand forecasting, we all thought was final four. Yeah. You know, Mike and I have talked for many years about the fatal flaw of statistical, regardless of of how you approach it, statistical forecasting has some really fatal flaws, which is to presume that the future will be some slight derivation or even radically different derivation of the past. And we saw during the pandemic that that was absolutely not the case, to quote every stockbroker ad you've ever seen, past performance is no indication of future value. And, you know, I think what we discovered is that we have long rested on our laurels using techniques and forecasting that regardless of how much we change the algorithm, the foundational principle, which is taking the past and averaging it in some way, and then adapting it to try to reflect the future, is it is more than 100 years old and it is more than 100 years outdated. So, you know, we have to think about what really makes demand occur, and we have to predict that, predict people, predict their actions, predict the influencers on those people. And I don't mean influencers like on TikTok. I mean those things that actually make you buy, right? Yeah. 
that, that cause you to have a run on toilet paper, which we saw during the great toilet paper shortage of 2020. Um, you know, there was nothing that could have predicted that. In fact, that no. was a that was a viral effect of standing in Costco, say, and seeing somebody fill up their cart, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, right, we could be locked down, and if I don't get mine now, I may never get it." So, you know, we have to identify those things that can direct us to the cause of demand. All demand is causal. No demand is statistical. Statistical demand forecasting is a it's a surrogate for knowing the cause that made a, a demand occurrence occur. Yeah. Well, let me pull in a, a couple of things. So this, I just have to share this because just know, right? Just <laughs> well, sharing that uh, there you go. traffic She's delays in New right. Mexico because of tarantula migrations. No, I, I would just not go home. Like that's how you know it's, it's time to move, right? Um, if you're dealing with tarantula migrations and that's affecting your supply chain, you are in yep. the wrong place. I'm sorry, Josh. That is just not, not okay. And thank you, Scott, who's got our backs. Abilikin is a mythical good luck figure who represents things as they ought to be. In other words, not a tarantula migration. Just being totally clear on that point. So we've talked a little bit. <laughs> So Very, that's what Abilikin represents. Yes, is the, no tarantulas. The lack of future tarantula migrations. I, I like that. Exactly. Or the non-statistical factors that cause demand to rent. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Exactly. Right. Got it. Just just working all the way back through the back through the chain there. So we we talked about what should have made it to the final four and didn't. How about Cinderella stories, Mike? Right. How about things that. Maybe they were old school strategies that were rediscovered. Maybe they were sort of foundational or fundamental techniques that we hadn't thought about in a while that proved themselves to be valid. Any any Cinderella stories you can think of? Yeah, in this particular I, I, bracket I've, discussion. I've got two, and I'll I'll start with the, with one of them, and then if we have time, I'll, I'll bring up the second one. I, I think it, and I think Kelly, you described this really well. And as I was thinking about this question. To me, it, again, somewhat pandemic related, it's it's how people and companies are going back to work. And, and the reason I think that's a Cinderella story is I, I think early in the pandemic, everything got shut down and we went to remote work because we had to. But I think, you know, as we were talking to clients, I think there was across multiple industries, I think there was a belief that this was a a temporary and when we can you, you know you can define temporary any way you want but i think there was a general belief that this remote working was going to be temporary that at some point everyone would would get out of their house and they would drive to work and they would be back in the office i think what makes this a cinderella story is the fact that a that's not happening and b people are becoming much more comfortable with a hybrid type of approach and they're actually finding they can they can be really productive and their businesses can succeed and they can thrive in a remote hybrid environment and i think if if you were to have asked people two years ago do you see yourself in a remote hybrid environment i think most people would have said no out of fear that we we just couldn't get the work done and to me, the fact that we've gotten more work done, we've got people with, with an opportunity to get better work-life balance, 
We're getting people, um, providing for many people more flexibility. And we're, we're being made aware that businesses and industries that we thought were, you know, had to be in person all the time, like retail, as an example, mm-hmm. what we're finding is that's just not the case. And, and to me, part of a Cinderella story, if we think about basketball, is is the fact that, you know, it's a school that, you know, you really, you want to root for, but they, they, you know, you, you don't really see them having a chance maybe out of the first round. And I see that a lot with this, how companies are going back to work, right? We, we really wanted people to be able to, to work remotely. We didn't know that we, we didn't really have confidence that we'd be able to, we, the broader industry would be able to do that. And now we are, and you're seeing story after story of companies that are completely reconfiguring how their office looks. They're getting rid of large campuses and they're going to much more smaller, more satellite type of, of office locations. So to me, this was a fascinating thing to watch. And it was a fascinating thing for us at Gartner to be hearing and writing about and, and giving people advice about this. So that's one that I think is a, is a Cinderella story is, is kind of how we're going back to work. Greg, thoughts before we have Mike Sure, a second Cinderella story. Uh, yeah, I think automation is a is a big kind of Cinderella story as well. Uh, you know, and, and it goes to how people are working. And I think the Cinderella story there is not that automation is being used or that it's becoming prolific. It's that it's become imperative. It's an absolute necessity because some humans will never go back to do the jobs right. that That's they right. did before. And and I think the you know the um, fortunate happenstance of that is, is we can cease to apologize, something I talked about also in a, a summary recently. We can cease to apologize for automation and cease to worry about it taking people's jobs because it's literally taking jobs that's that right. no one would take for two years. So, and I, I think that's, that's a good thing because you know, when you think about repetitive use injuries and other dangers and the doldrums and and the mind-numbing nature of some jobs that we have had humans doing for yeah. decades, sometimes centuries, it's better that we use our, our true gifts and let automation, you know, use its true gifts. Let humans do human things, I say, yeah. right? And let technology do technology things. So yeah. I think that's one, and the, not just the pace, but the recognition that it is absolutely necessary going forward. That's probably the Cinderella story yeah. I'd land on. When I think back from more of a procurement standpoint through this whole thing, you know, for a lot of years now, it's been very sophisticated. Where do you get stuff from? Who do you buy it from? How many suppliers do you put in place? How long is the supply chain? Over the last two years, it was just get it, period, Mm -hmm. right? Whatever has to be done. Yeah. Wicked old school, right? You know, there were cities and companies setting themselves up as importers of records so that they could bring things in directly. Right. And it was it was interesting. I had the opportunity to speak to the now former CPO of New York City, who was still running it at the time. And he talked about wading through like gray markets to get PPE and how awful it was. But there was never a question about whether they were going to do it. Right. And so when you think about kind of an unglamorous thing to do that is absolutely essential. 
know, I think from a procurement standpoint is just doing whatever is necessary to bring that stuff in to keep companies running. Not exciting, right? But without that, so many things wouldn't have happened over the last couple of years. I think you could argue that procurement in and of itself is a Cinderella story. I mean, the, right. the things that had to be done to keep factories going, to keep yes. brands on the shelf, to resource, right, to find new materials, uh, new means of, yeah. of, of construction or production, all of those things had to change. And it is, I mean, it, it really speaks to the resourcefulness of people that most people don't even know what the hell they do every day, right? Exactly. So, Mike, I'm curious, what's your second Cinderella story? So the second one is an interesting one, I think, because it's it's been around for a little while. And, and I, we're definitely on the Gartner side seeing an evolution. And it's, it's this idea of control towers. If we think about control towers, not necessarily a new technology, it historically was used to really track physical assets. Where's my trucks? Where's my ships? Where's my containers? I think what makes for me control towers a Cinderella story is, is how that has evolved to really being one of the key visibility technologies that companies have used during the pandemic. And it has shifted. Well, shift is probably not the right word. It's now evolved to not only worrying about physical assets, but now we're tracking data. We're tracking inventory. We're tracking orders. Mm-hmm. We're tracking forecasts. You know, we've had, um, we're in the middle of our top 25 season and we've had a number of briefings from companies that are using control towers and satellite imaging, as an example, to monitor where their raw materials and how their raw materials are being processed. So everything from palm oil to tobacco, right, using control towers, satellite imagery to start to link the production and the use of these raw materials. So to me, it's it's this evolution of a technology that fit a real need, where's my stuff, to now really being an enabler of, I'll use the resiliency and agility words again, to be real enablers of that. And that to me, I think was something that I don't know people saw coming as an mm-hmm. additional use or a new use for control towers. Yeah. Well, and, and anything that we can take and augment or modify as new things become available, right? It takes something fundamental like a control tower right. and it vastly expands what we can potentially do with it, which is huge. Now, when you talk about that resilience, Mike, let's sort of switch you over to your coaching mindset for a minute here. And you find yourself in the second quarter of the game. It is not going according to plan, right? Sounds familiar. How do we know or how should companies know when they should trust the plan and stick to it and it's going to work itself out by the final buzzer? And when do you make that risky call to make a change, make a switch because of what you're seeing and experiencing? Yeah, I think that it's an interesting question. I mean, one of the things that that we try if I if I put my coaching hat on is and I think it works for business is there are times for you to try new things. And that's in practice. So you want to get in practice or in, if I, if I then pivot to kind of the business world, in, in, in building your day-to-day capabilities, you want to understand what do you do well and what do you necessarily still need to work on. And yeah. 
when you get into a game or you get into the real world, you need to be able to execute the things that you've quote unquote practiced. That's what you want to be executing on. That's what, you know, if, if in practice we've, let's say we've put in a new play, right? You know, we, we are not going to run that play at the end of a game if we've never practiced it. So you know, what I tend to see some organizations do to your question, Kelly, is trying to pivot into either markets, areas, or capabilities that they've never practiced. And, and yes, you, you cannot practice everything. Right, you do have to be able to make a game time decision, or or a business decision in the heat of the moment. But you really want to draw on past experiences, past capabilities, and past things that you've practiced. Uh, Chuck Noel used to. I'll date myself. Right, today is old stuff day. I'll date myself. <laughs> right. right, Chuck Noel is uh, was coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers in the seventies. One of the best coaches in NFL history. He had a quote that says, "You know, we don't practice stuff to get it right. We practice stuff so we never do it wrong." And when I think about kind of companies today, you know, where where I see companies struggle is either kind of chasing a shiny object that they don't necessarily have use cases for or know how it's going to fit within their broader company or supply chain strategy or companies, you know, doing things they haven't practiced or not putting enough time into the things that they should be practicing. So if you think about, if I use a basketball analogy, right, you know, you need to be practicing every day, very simple things like dribbling, passing and catching. Even at the varsity level where I coach, you still have to practice those things. If I think about the real world, things like sales and operations planning, right, is is one of the things that has has you know passed the test of time. You need to be able to do that. You need to have practiced it, and you need to be good at it. So, to me, kind of if I if I bring that my answer to a close, and sorry, it was kind of a long one. It's it's do what you know you can do well. And make educated guesses on what you think you can do well based on what you've practiced. Well, and it's funny because there's a there's a commercial out right now, and it's really good. So it was probably paid for by some insurance company. I don't remember where it's it's they're right up against the clock, and somebody comes from the stands maybe and grabs the coach's little Uh-oh, whiteboard yes. and maps out this wicked complicated thing and. Trust me, coach, it's, it's going to work. And I'm pretty sure it ends with him hitting either a ref or the mascot in the yes. face with the basketball, which yes. is probably not the objective of that play. Yes. Right. So that's not the goal, right? Not working towards that. It's not about like we have nothing else to lose. And so we're going to hit the ref in the face with the ball. Greg, when we when we take sort of this idea of knowing when to pivot in risky situations and apply it to maybe opening our consideration to some of the newer startups that have entered supply chain over the last couple of years, because there's been a ton of them, mm-hmm. huge influx of money, lots of people that are now for the very first time going to you know, solve supply chain for the rest of us. How do we apply that idea of knowing when to change plan, but instead making it knowing when to move from something more proven like a control tower, even augmented with something slightly new and try a completely new technology? How do you, how do you make that decision? It's interesting. You know, I made a career of doing that technology companies that replaced old technology or old techniques in supply chain. I'm at one today. You can't see their logo, but it's Verison um, who's doing a similar thing. And, you know, what I have seen companies do in the past, and I know they will do, is 
when the pain, it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't know, right? When the pain of what is harming, hampering, or, or killing your business becomes greater and more feared than the fear of the transition, both to new technology and new business processes and, and um, talent um, pools, then that's when companies will typically make the, the, the shift. What I've long told my sales teams and many of the companies that I work with and advise now is companies don't run fast towards ROI. They run fast away from what is hurting their company. And if you have the solution to what is hurting their company, the, they will come to you. But I think that that's one of the things that companies have to recognize is that they have to recognize that something is hurting or has the potential to hurt the company before it does, right? A preemptive strike against fragility. We talked about resiliency, Mike, but preemptive strikes against fragility is what's really required now. And more companies need to be looking at the ability to reduce, to eliminate in the Chuck Knoll standard, to eliminate fragility, to eliminate the risk of failure in order to be successful. So when, when if you're attacking a disruption, um, you have to first anticipate some kind of disruption and not the, you know, not the, the specific black swan event, but the result of an event like that. If something bad happened, what would be the worst impact on the business? And then you build a, uh, a strategy, a tool set, processes, people, or technologies to attack and either prevent <clears throat> or rapidly respond and recover from those kinds of disruptions. Yeah. So let me pull in a couple of comments from the audience. First of all, Peter, no worries. I got the note you were going to be late. Right. No need to no need to right. stress it today. If you do have any bracket tips, though, we will take them. Likewise, from Stephen, I did not get a note on you, though. So sorry, but better late uh, than never. You're in Stephen. Dutch with so a teacher. I know, exactly. So we're glad you're here. But yes, Scott, today <laughs> is old stuff day. And so thank you, first of all, for joining us. Thank you also for this week's episode of This Week in Business History. Oreos are old stuff. Does not mean you should eat old Oreos, but the history of, of Oreos, most popular snack in the country, um, definitely worth celebrating. Indeed. So Mike, exactly. And now they have gluten-free, so we can all celebrate. So, Mike, a minute ago, you were starting to talk about the top 25 mm. supply chains. Yes. And I know that the big release, all that information isn't coming out until early summer. But are there any early insights or observations or things that you can share from us either about what those clearly very proven supply chains learned didn't work? or maybe some newer, more innovative strategies that you are seeing work for them? Yeah, I think the the big the big topic that I see being discussed more and more is sustainability. And, and within that, this idea of environmental, social, and governance, ESG. So if I rewind the clock, and, in this, and, and to me, the sustainability piece is one of those few things that was moving and continues to move regardless of the pandemic. So it is one of the few things I think within the supply chain that really was not influenced by the pandemic. People were, were moving in this direction. People continue to move in that direction. And if anything, we're seeing excel, we are seeing an acceleration of people's ESG and sustainability ambitions, you know, despite the, the last couple of years. 
I think what we've seen, at least what I've seen in talking to these companies in the last couple of years, is, is a definite change in mindset from even three to five years ago where we companies felt a need to, to talk about sustainability. They, you know, if you gave them true serum, you probably would have had mixed results around whether people actually believed what they were saying relative to sustainability. But they were saying it anyway because they felt they needed to. And then lo and behold, right, we start talking about, you know, these topics and, and we start to see, you know, trucks get more efficient. I drive less miles. I start to make more money in transportation. So people started to see kind of not only obviously a social benefit, but they actually started to see a financial benefit around this as well. And then they said, well, maybe we're onto something. So it, it is just kind of snowballed from there where we're seeing more and more organizations, you know, not only talk about what they're doing and actually doing stuff, but we're seeing it baked into the supply chain. And I think, you know, if, again, if we go back a few years, almost anything that you saw from a sustainability perspective came out of a corporate communications department. That's, you know, the, this, the, we're doing this and it's the byline is, is the corporate communication department. Fast forward to today, almost everything you see from sustainability is coming from the supply chain, whether it's mm -hmm. a chief supply chain officer whether it's a chief sustainability officer who works with the supply chain, the supply chain has, and I think for, for many, many great reasons, the supply chain has inherited this. And I think for what we've done with it is fantastic in terms of how, as a supply chain profession, we've taken this, this topic of sustainability and we've, we've run with it and we've advanced it. And more and more companies, if you look online, are accelerating goals that maybe they had for 2030. They're now going to deliver them in 2025. We've got more companies being cognizant of things like a circular economy. How do I, I mean, we had great discussions with our high-tech companies around things like laptops and what they're doing with old laptops and turning them from a chassis and frame perspective into new laptops. Microsoft has a mouse made completely from recycled plastic from the ocean, right? The companies are doing and becoming very creative. I bought, Greg will appreciate this, I bought a pair of golf shoes from Adidas made completely of recycled plastic. Haven't tried them yet. Those. Haven't tried them yet, but they were, they were in my school colors, black and gold, so I had to buy them. So we'll see. But there, there's more and more around circular economy. Biodiversity is now a topic. People recognizing that what they take out of the ground is, is as, it's as important to figure out what am I going to put in the ground to replace that or use instead of that. So to me, that, that is such an, an important topic. And now when we layer in some of the, the social areas like diversity, equity, inclusion, we're now seeing supply chains talk about that. So when I think about our top 25 companies, that's what's really standing out to me now is how, is how vocal and how leading these companies are in that ESG arena. Yeah. Now, if we turn that into a bracket, here's what I would be curious about, Mike. Sure. In some cases, I have a feeling operational teams are really hustling to keep up with the talk that's already been done. And in other cases, 
companies are finally talking because they actually have the results and they are so excited not only to share their impact, but because there's a competitive advantage associated with, with being good on this. If we have kind of a last final pairing here on which is driving more of a difference, is it those verbal commitments that force the operation to come in and, and back up those words? Or is it that the work is actually being done and now companies are getting to a point where they're comfortable talking about it? Yeah, that that's a great question. This is, if I put it in the brackets, this is the 9-8 matchup, right? The number nine seed, the number eight seed, It's it could go either way, but you have to pick someone in your bracket, right? There are no ties. Yeah, I, I would yeah. pick, in, and it's a great question, Kelly, in this bracket, I would pick it's the because companies are feeling pressure externally, right? We've got data that suggests that, you know, around 60% of customers are looking for a sustainable company when they buy stuff. 77 or 78% of people would actually boycott a company if they had, you know, a negative social impact. Because we're getting these external influences, I'm going to answer your question from the standpoint is companies are now being held accountable to targets that they set, and that's mm -hmm. what's driving them. And the operations folks have to catch up. Yes, there are, there are some companies that maybe were a little bit hesitant to talk about what they were doing because maybe they didn't feel, uh, even though they were doing really good stuff, they may have felt that it, it, it wouldn't stand up to what everyone else is talking about. But I think in today's environment, companies are being forced to re-examine, be very public, and disclose the things that they're doing in this area. I mean, we, we've got top 25 companies that are now linking executive compensation to okay. things like sustainability goals and DE&I objectives. So that to me is, is where people are, are headed. At least that's what we're seeing in the top 25 companies. Yeah. What do you think, Greg? Would you make the same pick? Yeah, unquestionably companies catching up to what they've been saying for years, right? And the operations teams are finally, uh, finally getting some actual support from management to be able to, yeah. to attack some of those initiatives. Right. I think, I mean, it, I think everybody knows whatever you want to call it, greenwashing or lip service, whatever you want to call it. That's been going on for decades, frankly, around a lot of ESG initiatives. And now, again, not rushing towards something they're running away from the fact that now negative perception, negative cost can all impact the business negatively. And um, finally seeing the dollar signs and yeah. I mean, ultimately, hopefully the goodwill that, that is generated by, by actually delivering on those sometimes decades old promises. Yeah. Greg, yeah. Greg, we, you and I didn't talk about this before, but you raise a great point. We actually have a note from a couple of people on my team that are writing a note about greenwashing. We have now, mm. I think, gotten to the point where we actually have a name for it, right? Greenwashing. And we actually have an environment of highly educated consumers and stakeholders who are now able to kind of sift through what is, I don't want to say true and untrue, what is true and what is maybe embellished. And the yeah. reason we write that, we're, we're writing that note is there are, and you, you alluded to it, Greg, there are significant negative consequences if someone thinks you're greenwashing. That wasn't the case maybe three or four years ago. It is definitely the case now. 
and and I encourage people when when they're putting out there publicly as part of their organization the things that they're doing. Keep in mind, people will fact check you, and you know you need to have you know doing what you say you're doing. Do not be embellishing on what you're doing, and if you maybe aren't where you want to be, you will get a lot more credit fessing up to hey we're a little bit behind on our 2025 goals than saying, you know, not only are we going to hit 2025, we're going to do more stuff in 2030. People will see right through that. And, and greenwashing yeah. is a huge risk for companies. And it's only going to get, I think, a greater risk as we, as we open up other areas for sustainability. And we just continue to get an educated set of stakeholders that will be able to call BS if you're BSing. <laughs> well, and I would actually say, I mean, it's ironic, but the risks that have been taken around talking about sustainability, some of which counted as, as greenwashing, in the end have actually been a boon for the movement. I, you know, since early January, I've been focused on kind of the supplier diversity mm-hmm. movement as part of yes. ESG, as part of my LinkedIn accelerator. And I mm-hmm. actually think it's a hesitancy on the part of companies to talk about diversity in all of its categories, because it's people that we're talking about. I actually think it's holding the movement back a little bit. So it's almost like there's some amount of healthy greenwashing that starts to build a little momentum. You don't want to be the one that gets caught. You don't want to be the one getting held accountable, but bringing it to that point where it's consistently part of the conversation, there is something to be said for that in terms of how quickly the movement itself builds up momentum. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Supply, supplier diversity, responsible sourcing, right? Those are huge topics for us now and on Gartner. And they are they are definitely topics of conversations within our top 25 companies. You know, I think one of the things that you mentioned, Kelly, that I agree with completely is is that diversity discussion period is a tough one for companies, whether that's just that the composition of their workforce, whether it's the composition of their suppliers, right? You talked about supplier diversity. I think, you know, and I would and I'm not going to suggest that top 25 companies have that figured out because they don't. But I do, what I do see in top 25 companies is an acknowledgement that it's a hard conversation and an acknowledgement that it's conversations we're going to have and a recognition that we will not always get the conversation right, but we're still going to try, right? And that to me is is as important, right, is recognizing that we will not be perfect in this, but we're still going to try, right? And we're still going to work through it because it's important. Absolutely. Well, Mike, it was an absolute pleasure having you on for the live stream, giving us your bracket tips, any final predictions you want to make about March Madness before we have you share your contact information with folks and ride off into the Gonzaga sunset? Yeah. So, I mean, if you'd asked me on Saturday, before Saturday, I would have thought I had an idea. But on Saturday, in case people had missed it, seven, <laughs> seven of the top 10 all lost. First time that's ever happened in the history of the poll. So to me, in years past, and I think Greg would agree with this, in years past, there's been a couple of teams that had kind of separated themselves, and the chances that one of those two teams or three teams was going to win the tournament would, would, would be likely. I think this year it's pretty deep. There's probably eight or nine teams that uh, on any given um, you know, weekend, right, or stretch of, of a weekend can, could win the whole thing. So yeah, my, if, if you're looking at the top 10, I would say that the winner is going to come out of the top 10. I don't think they're going to come out uh, any deeper than that. 
Awesome. And if folks want to get in touch and learn more about you or learn more about Gartner, what is the best place sure. for them to go? You can email me directly. Happy to have that. Mike.Griswold at Gartner.com. I'm, I'm continuing my journey in LinkedIn, getting better every, every day. Still not where go. still not where people, most people are, I'm sure, with LinkedIn, but that's another way um, as well. And, and but email, but I'm I'm still an old school email guy. So feel free to send me emails. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mike, for yeah, being thanks, with Mike. us. It's my pleasure. Great to see everyone. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Take care. All right, Greg. Well, that's that's interesting. Now, I do feel a little bit more comfortable talking about basketball now that we've had Mike here for a little while. <laughs> well, Mike's an old pro, right? Um, yeah. And, and a head coach, for anyone who doesn't know, head, he coaches ladies basketball at a, at a high school at, I think, right now, two different levels, varsity and junior varsity. So he knows of what he speaks because he lives it and quite well, apparently. So about basketball and supply chain. Undoubtedly, yeah. you know, a practitioner, right? When I, when I started working with Mike, which was some years ago, he had come out of industry as a practitioner of supply chain and procurement, by the way, somewhat. So he knows what he's talking about and he's got a vast amount of resources around him to help continually research how things are changing. And that's, that's one of the beauties of groups like Gartner who just continually, they have no other agenda than producing the information that helps us improve the craft. And they do that, not just in supply chain, but that's the part we care. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, and here's the interesting thing, I think about something like a, a brackets or, you know, football squares, if people did that at the, at the Super Bowl, is that it, it sort of makes the conversation more inclusive because it levels the, the playing field. I can't help but wonder if we're going to, going forward, see a dynamic a little bit like that around supply chain, because, you know, you mentioned the great toilet paper scare of, you know, 2020. Everybody is now an expert on supply chain, at least in yeah. their own mind. And it reminds me of that story. I We attribute it as being a, a Boston story because there's always trucks getting stuck under overpasses. But who knows? It could have been anywhere where the truck is totally wedged and traffic's all backed up. And the little girl rolls her window down and says to the police officer, why don't you just let the air out of the tires? And of course, that gives them just enough space to be able to probably drag the truck through at that point. Mm -hmm. You can't help but wonder if there's somebody out there that wasn't in supply chain, maybe wasn't even operational, but is going to look at some element of the challenges we've been facing or the opportunity in a yep. unique enough way to totally revolutionize things. I can't help but think that's a real possibility. Yeah, I agree. I think people have been trying to do it for years and they have you know, as we talked about with the forecasting technique, they have been stymied by the, this is the way we've always done it crowd. And there are a lot of things that got exposed. A lot of those ancient techniques that we use in supply chains that got exposed. And hopefully that ignites someone with both the intellect and the ambition to, you know, to take an, a different look at it. It is an incredibly complex problem. I can tell you that some of the problems I solved, I was vexed by for nearly a decade. So it's an incredibly complex environment and that makes it exceptionally difficult. It's not like, it's not as simple as a truck stuck, right? But right. it's not impossible. And, yeah. um, and there are lots of really smart people doing it. And we've observed over the years, people coming into supply chain from physics and finance and various and sundry other uh, businesses that take a completely different perspective and give us a new perspective. And I think Mike spoke to that, not just that, 
but uh, to this new perspective on supply chain, but also to the growing transparency in supply chain. Yeah. You can't hide in a dark corner of the of the planet anymore and do bad deeds yeah. and not be found out. And yeah. I think that is a critical aspect of it too. I mean, they're, they're, one of the things we have to confess, I'm able to confess because I don't work for any of these people out there, is that there are some intentional obfuscation. There is intentional misdirection. There is intentional pricing strategies that are not conducive to market forces or not responsive to market forces. There are all kinds of those things. But as those are surfaced and as transparency and things like control towers give us a viewpoint to those things, those things will change just like they have in other industries and other parts of the, of the world and other parts of society. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see if there are any big upsets to kind of stay with our bracket idea in, in this year's top 25 supply chains, because sometimes the supply chains that have done the best under other conditions are sort of structured against being able to adapt quickly enough to succeed in different conditions. That's right. One of my favorite business books of all times, pencils out, everybody write this down, The End of Competitive Advantage by Rita Gunther McGrath. I love that book. And she talks in it about the fact that the things that allow companies to get big enough to kind of dominate a, a unique space that they carve out for themselves is the exact same thing that makes them at risk of disruption. That's right. Because you have a little somebody, a little agile service, somebody that does it totally differently, shoot in from the side and start to steal your market share. And you either don't see it, you dismiss it by mistake, or you recognize the the failing in your system and you just can't get things to move differently fast enough. It's it's back to that moment in the game where you realize the plan isn't working, right? Can you change the plan? Yeah, as evidenced by companies like Sears and Roebuck, who literally in, in could could mail you a house via mail yeah. order, the entire house. And dramatically, I don't even know. They weren't even, it wasn't even a dramatic failure because they just sort of faded away during a time when a new age of mail order, right? That being e-commerce, was thriving, a company that should have been able to adapt. That's just one example, and there are thousands more. Um, yeah. So yes, the disruptors will always disrupt the the leaders and the leaders will always defend their methodology because they have so much invested in it. I think what we're seeing, Kelly, though, in, you know, in, in today's day is more companies starting to absorb these disruptors or embrace these disruptors Agreed. and make it a separate portion of their business and ultimately migrate their business that direction lest they go out of business. Go the way yeah. of the one, like J.C. Penney. I think yeah. J.C. Penney's out of business. And the voice they choose to give those companies, and the thought leaders at those companies, right? Right? Do they just absorb sort of the capability, absorb the market share, absorb the approach and the philosophy? Or do they actually allow the people that build that business to affect their larger business? That's probably going to end up being a question of advantage. Yeah. Well, and Walmart, Jet is a great example. When they bought Jet.com, I don't know if people even remember that, but mm-hmm. they bought Jet.com, and it took them years to integrate that into their standard business because they knew that the dynamics were dramatically different and they let the founders continue to run jet, which became walmart.com and walmart.com is an enormous force in e-commerce these days. Absolutely. 
So, Greg, we're coming to the end of our hour here. We had a great conversation with, I know, I know. It, it wasn't that fast. <laughs> yeah, Mike just fast. brings so much with him, and we had some great comments coming from the audience. Um, and now, of course, even if we weren't doing brackets, do you say doing brackets, playing brackets? I'm obviously not a bracket person. What's uh, yeah. the verb for brackets? Yeah, uh, busting Breaking. is the only one I know. <laughs> busting is the only That's thing. a bad sign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but certainly we're going to look forward to hearing with everybody. Keep sharing as your brackets either break or, or you find Cinderella stories. But thank you for spending the hour with us live. Uh, thank you for listening on demand if you're catching this later. And Greg, in lieu of Scott being here, it wouldn't be a Supply Chain Now live stream if I did not say, do good give forward, and be the change that you want to see in the world. Thank you so much for joining us, everybody, for today's live stream. Have a terrific rest of your day. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now.